the only daily Premier League podcast. This is Football Social Daily. Hello and welcome along to the Sunday night Premier League review show here on the Football Social Daily. Another big, busy and bustling weekend of Premier League action with contrasting Saturdays for the red and blue halves of Manchester. Disaster for Eric and ruthless for Pep. United's early season form has slipped into crisis mode. Yes, it is a disaster at the moment at Manchester United. 4-0 defeat in the blistering Brentford heat means United's worst start to a Premier League season since their first Premier League season way back in 1992. Eric wants answers. Tyro Marshall will be joining us hopefully to give us some answers, but not directly to Ten Hag because he's pretty frightening at the moment. United's mood will not be helped by City smashing four by Bournemouth. Erling Haaland finally introducing himself to the Etihad faithful and it was firmly a tale of two Manchesters. All that to come in part one of tonight's show. It's going to be a cracker. Part two, we look at another hot home debut. Gabriel Jesus powered Arsenal to victory against Leicester, and then we throw it all the way back to 2006. Lampard against Gerrard. Yes, we're doing this again. Frank against Stevie in the Premier League, but it was advantage Stevie G this time round as things begin to look ominous for Frank at Everton. And then to wrap it all up, we'll be reviewing the rest of the weekend's action. Nottingham Forest's first Premier League points since 1999 and a battle at the bridge. Chelsea 2, Spurs 2, but it was Antonio Conte back at his old stomping ground that stole the headlines. So plenty to get through. It's hot, it's warm, it's sticky. Man in Fergal Brennan on duty tonight. We have Goal.com's Manchester City man, Jonathan Smith. Any tips for keeping cool? <laughs> Go to the Etihad. That, that, that'll keep your blood from boiling. Fair enough. Uh, someone that I won't even dare to question how hot he's been for the last 24 or 48 hours. Back from the Brentford oven, both metaphorically and physically, we have the MEN's senior football writer, Ty Marshall. It looked rough in every sense at Brentford yesterday. Is that how it was? Yes, it was. Uh, I was just saying off air that the uh, the sun crept out from the stand that we were sat in about 30 minutes before kickoff and your heart sank when you realised for the next three hours you were basically going to be cooked and I think I was I was medium rare by full time and, uh, and ready for some air conditioning, that is for sure. Sounds delicious, uh, I have to say. But uh, it was a miserable day for Manchester United and just as it was last weekend when we had Jay Motti from the Stretford Paddock on tie, we have to start with United. Miserable start to the season for them continues this weekend. As I mentioned in the intro, worst start to a Premier League season since 1992. And Eric Ten Hag in no mood for excuses at full time. He's cancelled the squad's day off today. They were expected to have another 24 hours break before getting back to Carrington on Monday. That's been canned and he is raging. He blamed individual errors. He blamed a lack of effort, a lack of cohesion. His post-match press conference was, was something to behold yesterday. And... He was quite straightforward about what he wants in the next few weeks. He said, we need new players, we need quality players, we're working on that and we'll do everything we can to convince them. For me, that's the interesting word, convince them to come to Manchester United. There is only two weeks left in the transfer window. Is there enough time to effectively transform Manchester United from what we've seen? They've conceded six goals in two games and they look 
like one of the worst teams in the Premier League right now? Uh, no, I think would be the simple answer. There isn't enough time. And the, the ship has basically sailed. I mean, everyone knows he wanted Frankie de Jong. Frankie de Jong is his top target. If de Jong was uncertain about joining United 10 days ago, then there's absolutely no way he's going to join now. I just cannot see any scenario where he's looked at these first two games and thought, that's a good career move, isn't it? Um, it's just it's just not going to happen. I think that, that has to be considered dead in the water. And I just don't... I don't... They don't look like a team, even off the pitch. It capped off a disastrous week when last week was about signing Marco and Outovic and... It's just, it's a shambles on and off the pitch. It is a complete shambles. And they need, they've, they've clearly got a constrained budget this year because they're spending within their means. They've got, they finished sixth last year. The top five for me have all got a better squad than they finished last season with. United have got a worse squad than they finished last season with. And they're just looking in deep, deep trouble. I don't really know where, where rock bottom is. I thought it was at Brighton last season, to be honest. I mean, I thought it was at Watford in October and there's about four more after that last season. Um, now it's at Brentford. Does it end here? And I think it'd be a pretty brave man to say that Saturday was, was rock bottom. There there's certainly feels like there's more to come after what transpired on the pitch. They've had a terrible transfer window. They're not, they're not, uh, they're not been aggressive enough. They've not been committed enough. And the, there's many, many problems with the Glazers. Um, the... This, this, this idea about the spending and they, they basically spend within their means but when it comes to a transfer window like this and they're not in the Champions League you're talking they've got a budget of £120 million it's just not enough that's not going to go that's not going to fix this squad and there's no way they're going to get in the Champions League next season or they, they're going backwards and they're going to go backwards at a rate of knots and next season they're going to be even further away from the top four it, it is reaching the point where this only stops now when, when they go I think and it's, it's, it's the old saying the fish rots from the head for, for all that people say they spent, they spent the money the club are making and they are basically careless, carefree owners who are never at the club, are showing very little interest and that attitude now I think has just permeated the entire club and it's just, it does feel rotten and it's hard to know where, where rock bottom is for them. Well, rock bottom was the same term that was used by Chris Sutton when he was asked by BBC Match of the Day after the game last night. So, Ty, I just want to ask you about some of the comments that were thrown around because it, it is pretty brutal. Uh, Chris Sutton, as I mentioned there, saying that they've hit rock bottom. Karen Carney said the situation simply cannot get any lower for Eric Ten Hag and his players. Most interestingly, though, Gary Neville, he's not shy in criticising Manchester United. He said that due to the Glazers' ownership, there is a collective rot. And I just want to give you the full Neville quote just to get your your take on this. He said, we're witnessing the annihilation of Manchester United. I thought United would do better today at Brentford, but they've been mauled, bullied, messed about with like you wouldn't believe. There's nowhere to hide for these players. I've been watching United for 42 years and I cannot think of a moment where I've thought things have been as bad as they were in that first half. There's, there's no sugarcoating it from Neville. Is this as bad as it is. You were there yesterday. There was protest in the stand from the United fans. Eric Ten Hag himself didn't seem to be able to get a grip on it. You've got players that, that don't seem interested. They don't seem able to follow instructions. Is this as bad as Neville is painting it? Yeah, I, th I think it is. I mean, I don't think there's a single positive you can take out of the situation at the moment. It is just a collective rot is, is a good way of summing it up. And, and it was what I was sort of saying a, a minute ago that it... It is a, a, it's a failing from the top that they've got owners who just aren't interested and that has now seeped into every aspect of the club and I think 
everyone is to blame. Those The fans are being let down by the owners, they're being let down by the players, they're being let down by the directors. The, to, to a degree, yesterday they were let down by the manager, I think. I don't think Ten Hag should escape criticism for this. I think there's some alarming... Alarm bells would be ringing for me. It's very early days and he could turn it around and it takes a manager time to, to learn the Premier League. But there's, there's, there's aspects that are concerning, like playing Christian Eriksen as a defensive midfielder. I mean, even Guardiola and Klopp wouldn't do that. Um, and, and that was... It didn't contribute directly to the first couple of goals, but all of Brentford's pressure came about because of that. But it does, it does feel like there's not a single positive. The squad... Uh, it, it, it certainly feels watching like they're down in tools at times. I think confidence-wise, I just think they're completely shredded. I spoke to... Um, it was in, I was the only um, member of the sort of Manchester pack of, of journalists, I guess, in the mix zone yesterday. And De Gea came out and actually asked to speak to... Well, to me, but to the Manchester journalists, basically. And he wanted to speak and hold his hands up. And he was talking about confidence. And he said, as soon as something goes wrong, we're just panicking. And you can see that on the pitch. You can see that they are just collectively broken, basically. Um, and it, it, there is just no positives. And it's very interesting the way Ten Hag's going about it. it I mean, it feels very, very early in a rain to be cancelling players' days off, doesn't it? Um, it's, you hope that that gets the right reaction, but it, it kind of feels like that's, it, it's very, very early to be using that kind, of, that kind of tactic against players. And you just wonder whether that will have... The, the required reaction or not. Jonathan, I want to ask about Brentford before we move on to City because as I was watching this yesterday and listening to the commentary, I actually think people were being a bit disingenuous to Brentford. There seemed to be a stokifying of Brentford's performance against United yesterday. For as bad as Manchester United were, Brentford were excellent. Now, I, I say that in terms of implementing a tactical plan, being ruthless when chances came their way and forcing errors. I, I always think there's a difference between errors that you can benefit from as an attacking team and when you impose yourself on another team. And that's exactly what Brentford did yesterday. All this talk of Lissandro Martinez getting out-jumped by two metres, I don't think that was necessarily an issue yesterday. The, the, the Ben Mee goal, he got out-fought at the back post, yes. But all the other goals were basic errors right the way through the rest of the team. But because of the way Brentford was set up, they were able to punish them. Other teams might not have been as brutal to United yesterday, but the way Thomas Frank sets Brentford up and the way they implemented that yesterday was just too much for United. And that was the difference yesterday. You had a hungrier, resilient, well-coached unit against a rabble. Yeah, and I think Thomas Frank will have told his players to get into United from the very beginning. He will have worked on them throughout the week. He will have watched um, Eric Ten Hag's first game in charge of United and, and spotted the weaknesses in that defeat to Brighton and he would have identified the areas where they can put them under pressure and he would have got them really fired up for that and said look they are there for the taking I don't think he would have expected a 4-0 victory but you could see from that from that very first few moments that there was a plan of of what United were trying to do and how they were going to counter it that high pressing I think one of the problems that Ten Hag has got is he's obviously got a strategy of how he wants United to play and the players aren't aren't good enough, and they aren't confident confident enough to do it. I, I think that obviously the first goal was just a sloppy error from De Gea. Those things happen. Um, you know, they, he's been a great keeper, obviously, but you know, he's, he's there's no doubt he's culpable for that one. But the second goal, United didn't really know what they were supposed to be doing, and, and they put the pressure on 
on De Gea. They put the pressure on Ericsson, they forced him into a mistake, turned it over 2-0. Uh, and, and from then on, it was always going one way. The crowd were into it. Brentford were even more of the match than they were. Um, and, and, and I think the fourth goal was probably the most alarming from United's point of view. That looked like a Ten Hag uh, strategy to play high up the pitch. We've seen that with, with City. We've seen that with Liverpool to defend high up the pitch. Uh, and Brentford would have worked on that and they knew exactly what they were doing. And they, you know, it was a brilliantly worked goal. And when the, you know, when the ball comes through for uh, Mbouma, he, he just wants it more. He just wants it more than Luke Shaw. Uh, and just fantastic, brilliant play from them and, and a thoroughly deserved victory. And yeah, I think the scoreline was pretty much justified. From uh, four goals conceded to four goals scored, it was a completely different weekend for Manchester City. Jonathan, you were at the Etihad Stadium yesterday. 4-0 win at home to Bournemouth. Game effectively over at half-time. 3-0 up. Ilkay Gundogan, Kevin De Bruyne and Phil Foden on target. Jefferson Lerma own goal late on, wrapping it up as if there was, as if there was any danger that it was going to change. Erling Haaland's home Premier League debut for Manchester City. And the interesting one for me on this, as well as his crazy stats map that I'm just taking a little look at here which was two passes and one assist uh, proving that he doesn't need to be overly involved in absolutely everything to make an impact he probably would have wanted a goal in front of the home fans on on his first start there but Kevin De Bruyne just reminding everybody that there might be a new guy in town but there's only one sheriff in town goal for De Bruyne (laughs) assist for De Bruyne and he was excellent yeah he's just just fantastic and he just he just sets the standard for City. He's, he's running. He works so hard. It's not just about the quality. It's his. It's his. Um, you know, it's his effort. It's his attitude. He just sets the tempo for City from minute one. Right. I mean, he 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 got a bit of a rest, I suppose, yesterday because of the sunshine. But he just worked so hard. And um, yeah, but it's interesting from Erling Haaland's point of view. Like you say, not many touches, not many passes yet. He was still a threat for all that. You know, in the, in the first five minutes. Phil Foden should have squared the ball to him. He's in exactly the right position, would have had a simple tap-in. He then has to wait another 10 minutes for his first touch, incredibly. Uh, and that and that turns out to be an assist for um, for the opening goal for Gundogan. So that was important. And he had a couple of other chances where, you know, was, the thing is with Bournemouth, they were, they, they were packing the defence. Of course, there were eight, nine men behind the ball. Very, very tight, particularly in the middle of the park. Um, but he still had a couple of, you know, a couple of openings, um, uh, yeah, so perhaps a frustrating day, whereas, like you say, De Bruyne, you know, he's been around the block so many times with City, knows exactly what's going on. And and, and just to contrast it with United, you know, it's it City are constantly evolving, small changes. They've got themselves into a position now where they have to just improvise, not improvise, sorry, evolve a little bit each season just to keep themselves on top. And they're all, they all know what they're doing. They're all involved in that tactical process. Um, and the difference is just... I mean, obviously, on the, look at the table, City top, United bottom, but there's just a mile apart in every other way as well. Yeah, that is a, a particularly uh, bold position to be in. Manchester City top of the table and Manchester United bottom of it as we wrap up the second weekend of the Premier League season. The other big achievement yesterday for Kevin De Bruyne, I have to say, as a man of a similar complexion to Kevin De Bruyne, to be able to go in and do the press match, uh, post, <laughs> post-match press conference yesterday, he looked like me after coming back from the pub. So fair play to you, Kev. Uh, brilliant performance on and off the pitch. Right, we're going to take a break. After the break, we've got another 
another Manchester City flavour. Former City star Gabriel Jesus, two goals on his Emirates debut for Arsenal. 4-2 win for the Gunners over Leicester. We're going to be delving into that. And Stevie G against Frank Lampard. No, you've not stepped into a time machine. It is back. Stevie, Frankie, all over again. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Welcome back to Sunday night's edition of the Football Social Daily. Just a quick reminder, now that the Premier League is back in business for 2022-23 here at FSD Towers, we are also back to full strength. That means a daily Premier League podcast every single day, right the way through the season. If you hit subscribe, you can get access to a new show as soon as it is ready. We've got some big, big plans for this season, so don't forget to keep yourself in the loop. Right, Arsenal 4, Leicester City 2. Jonathan, bit of a Manchester City flavour, as I mentioned before the break in this one. Alexander Zinchenko starting and impressing, but it was all about Gabriel Jesus. The phone was ringing off the hook for him. Two goals in front of the home fans. Couldn't really have gone any better. Um, This was an odd game where Arsenal, probably still learning, did let Leicester back into it. Leicester huffed and puffed without really making much of an impact. But from your perspective, from Manchester City, Jesus and Zinchenko leaving were part of a number of exits from Manchester City this summer. Obviously, Raheem Sterling going to Chelsea is is another big one. As an Arsenal fan, yes, I want Jesus to bring goals to Arsenal, but I also want him to bring some of that title-winning magic dust or whatever it is that Pep Guardiola keeps locked away at the Etihad to Arsenal. Arsenal are not going to win the Premier League, but what they definitely could use in this team alongside Jesus's goals and Zinchenko's industry and creativity in midfield or at fullback is some of that resilience and some of that winning mentality that will get Arsenal into the top four and pushing on. Yeah, and they will both bring that, both Jesus and Zinchenko. Jesus is a fighter. He battles for everything. He's had to battle throughout his time at City just to get a starting place. And, you know, he got a lot of Good games, you know, big big matches when he was at City. You, only last season, you know, he, he he was recalled for the game against Liverpool at, uh, at the Etihad, which was a big match. He scored in that one. Um, he scored big goals against Real Madrid in the Champions League. So, yeah, he knows what it's all about. Same with Zinchenko. Um, obviously, it's been a tough few months for him with everything that's going on in his homeland and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, he, he, he's got such a strong attitude um, and you go back to that end of season against Aston Villa when City was struggling 2-0 down. It was Zinchenko who came on and changed the game. He was, you know, just opened up that left side for City, altered the game. Um, to, you know, he's a, he's a big-time player. The one thing I would say about Jesus, I would caution a little bit. I think you go back a few years when he first joined City, made a massive impact in his first few, day, few, first few games. Everyone was saying, you know, Sergio Aguero's under threat. He's going to take his place. And he was there for a few years and he could never quite nail down that number nine spot. You, you go back 12 months, he was talking about being a winger at City. He does have, you know, he does go through streaks of scoring goals and not scoring goals. Uh, you know, he's a, he's a fantastic player and I just hope that Arsenal, those, those goalless streaks are less frequent because he, he's a wonderful player and if he can keep it, more consistent, 
keep that confidence is going to be a brilliant signing for Arsenal. On the flip side for Brendan Rodgers, he looked uncomfortable, shall we say, Ty, at full time in, in his own post-match press conference. Uh, Leicester have got this bizarre record of being the only team in Europe's top five leagues to have not paid any money for a player this summer. Alex Smithies has come in on a free transfer, third choice goalkeeper. That's not going to cause too much excitement. Kasper Schmeichel has moved on. Danny Ward is now first choice. But more worrying for Leicester, there's more talk of players moving out of the club than coming in. Wesley Fofana went over to the Leicester fans at the end of the game. We all know in secret footballer language what that normally means. The Arsenal fans maybe cheekily maybe slightly in bad taste we're singing we'll see you next week to Yuri Tielemans about their links to the Belgian international there could even be one or two others James Madison's link with Newcastle things are looking difficult at Leicester at the moment if those players move on this standoff between Rodgers and the ownership or whatever the situation is has to end because Leicester could slide they're really important players and Leicester are not particularly playing well as it is I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a real danger they become... I don't think they'll get dragged into relegation trouble, but I think they could become a bottom-half team this year. And the problem for Rodgers is that, fundamentally, this always goes back on the manager. It always reflects either well or poorly on the manager. And if he loses Fafana and one of Madison and Tielemans and doesn't replace them adequately, then he's clearly working with, with an inferior squad. I thought... He got a little bit of criticism last season. I thought he actually did a really good job considering the injuries they had last year. I still think he's a, a brilliant manager who deserves a bigger job than Leicester. But yeah, in this in this as in this sport, as we know, you're only judged on your last season, really. And if they slide to 12th, 13th, 14th, something like that this season, it's going to reflect poorly on him and it's going to make getting another job or, or his next job more difficult. Suddenly he won't be in the running if a top six job comes up when, when maybe he would have been six to 12 months ago. So it is it is a delicate situation for him. It's it's clear there's some financial issues there. I mean, if they get 80 million for Fafana, that's clearly a, a good fee and you can't, you can't turn that down, I think, as Leicester when a team like Chelsea come calling. But the, the worry is that they've not invested so far this year. They're, they're the only Premier League team that hasn't signed a, or hasn't signed a player for a fee now. I mean, basically, haven't signed a player after they've signed a third-choice goalkeeper. Um, and they, you know, they've they've stood still. And the problem with this league is that when you stand still, you're going backwards very, very quickly because it, in in terms of funds, it basically is a Super League now, isn't it? You look at Nottingham Forest, who were basically the 20th team through the door this year by winning the playoffs who at current rates look like they might spend 150 million, 150 to 200 million, the way they're, they're throwing cash about. And as, as good as Leicester are and as clear of Forest as they were last season, when you don't spend any money or you lose players in the summer, you can suddenly find yourself sliding down the table very, very quickly. Spinning back to the early kickoff on Saturday, Jonathan, Aston Villa 2, Everton 1. All the big build-up to this was Frank Lampard against Steven Gerrard, their first managerial meeting of minds. Gerrard going for the suit and tie look. Lampard is firmly a tracksuit manager. 220 England caps between them. We, we all remember the age-old debates of can they fit in the same team. They were in opposite dugouts to each other this weekend and Gerrard probably which was a different situation when they played for England together, got the better of Lampard this time round. Uh, goals for Danny Ings and Emi Buendia, three points for Villa against Everton. We'll touch on Everton in, in just a second, but this was important for Villa to react. They lost to Bournemouth on the opening day. Stephen Gerrard was, was 
furious in his post-match after that game. Tyro Mings has come back into the fold, not as captain just yet, but he seems to reconcile things with Gerrard. They needed a reaction. They've spent a lot of money this summer as well, which will increase the pressure on Gerrard to drive them from mid-table to the edge of Europe. And this was an important win. Yeah, it was an important win. I think you're right, because I think the pressure's growing a little bit on Steven Gerrard. I think people are starting to point to his results um, and up until this up until this week, he was on a bit of a bad bad run of results. Um, and obviously that one at Bournemouth was was not a great start to the season. Um, and then when, when you, I think it was a bit like what Ty was saying earlier about um, Eric Ten Hag pulling out some of those tricks in terms of returning United returning to training early. You know, he went a bit early calling out Tyro Mings. Um, and if you do something like that, you, you've, you've got to make sure you get a reaction because... You know the squad could turn you turn against you, and so he's 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 pulled that lever, which is, seems to be a, a football phrase we're, we're talking about at the moment. So, um, <laughs> and it, and it's worked out. Yeah, it's a big three points. Just you know, uh, everyone else is now the talking point. Obviously, you know, United, West Ham haven't won yet. Um, there's, there's teams that have, have have not made a great start to the season, and and it just takes Villa out of the equation, takes the focus off them. Um, and, and obviously, the opponents, Everton, are one of those that everyone is really sort of looking at now and thinking, yeah, what's going on there? Well, Everton are one of four teams yet to pick up a Premier League point, saved tied by Manchester United being so dreadful. They're 17th at the end of the weekend. Crystal Palace faced Liverpool on Monday night, so we'll give them a bit of a break. West Ham, that we're going to touch on in part three, are also yet to pick up a point. Frank Lampard looks... Short on answers is the best way to describe this, uh, looking at the end of the game. Everton were, were poor. I watched this whole game yesterday. I was, I was actually quite looking forward to seeing this face-off between the two of them, and things were obviously quite friendly between them at the end of the game. Everton were really poor in almost every aspect of the game. Pressures, tackling, maintaining possession, building play. And one of the most alarming points here is nine defensive players. They played a back five and four midfielders so many players behind the ball in defensive positions and they couldn't defend. Villa got two goals, possibly could have had three or four. Everton's goal at the end came because Amadou Anana came on and had a bit of a wild five, six-minute cameo. They look as bad as the back end of last season. A lot of Everton fans gave Lampard a bit of a free breeze this summer because he, quote, saved them from relegation. They look worse. They do, yeah. I mean, I... I looked at that team yesterday when when the teams came out and we were on the way down to Brentford and I looked at Everton's starting eleven and I just thought championship basically um, you you can easily see that team getting relegated they've lost big players this year in in Richarlison I think Calvert Lewin's injured at the moment you've got Anthony Gordon leading the line he's, he's clearly not a striker is he I know in in I think the times today he's been linked with with Chelsea making a big move for him and that that team for me. Is is a poor starting eleven. It's it's not a it's not a guaranteed survival eleven. You've got Damari Gray on the wing, Decore and Awobi in midfield, Cody Holgate Tarkovsky at centre half. It's okay, but I wouldn't say it was guaranteed safety. I think it's it's short in a lot of areas, and it's got a manager I would say who is very much still unproven. Um, he he benefited. At Everton last year, simply by being by not being Rafa Benitez, basically, didn't he? But he didn't do. He, he kept them up, but he didn't do a great job. Um, they're in a worse situation, I would say, under under Lampard than they probably were under Rafa when he left. Um, 
he got them over the line. The, the best thing he did last year was make Goodison more of a fortress. Their home form under Lampard was was very good and it always feels like Goodison's one of those grounds where it, it can easily turn if, if things go wrong. So I think the biggest thing he did was make Goodison a fortress. But if that if that falls away this year and they start struggling, you, you can see him being under considerable pressure. And it's 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 partly through no fault of his own because again it's it's clearly a club that has got financial difficulties in 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 finding money for transfers and, and paying the money it needs to, to strengthen that squad because they are they are weaker than they were last season and they were they were pretty weak last season. So it's probably not a surprise that they might well be dragged into a battle. Before we take a break, Jonathan, I want to get your take on, on Lampard. Just looking at the next Premier League manager to be sacked, it's pretty much neck and neck between Frank Lampard and Ralph Harsenhutl, Eric Ten Hag, and this shows the fickleness of situations like this. He's actually third at the moment. <laughs> Is it fair on Lampard that, he, that he's in that position, that he's either first or maybe second alongside Ralph Harsenhutl to be sacked? Is he under that much pressure that we could see him gone very, very quickly? I mean, he's just inherited a, a, a pretty rotten situation. They were heading in the wrong direction. He's he's kept them up. Um, and I, I still think even this season that staying in the Premier League is, I think, well, I think that's the minimum. But I still think it's an, an achievement, really. I, you know, they had, like Ty say, you, you go through that squad and, you know, half that, half that team have been relegated from the Premier League already with, with other clubs. You know, Pickford, Tarkovsky, Dwight McNeil... Decore, they've all been relegated already. So that, that that's that's who he's picking from. He's got no striker to choose. He's got Anthony Gordon, who's possibly the most exciting player at the club, and he's he he's got to try and put him into various positions to get the best out of him. Um, yeah, I think it's really tough that Lampard is under so much pressure. Um, but yeah, Everton. <sighs> They've spent a lot of money, Everton, in, in the last few years, and, it, and it's not Lampard's fault. He's not the one who spent it, but that's where they are. They are they are going to be in, a, in, in those bottom six positions, and um, yeah, it's completely understandable that he, he is among the favourites. Yeah, looks a difficult few weeks and months ahead for Frank Lampard at Everton. Right, we're going to take another break. After the break, we are going to be wrapping up the rest of the Premier League action. Result of the weekend goes to Chelsea and Spurs. Two all at Stamford Bridge. A ding-dong between Tuchel and Conte at full-time and a big day at the City ground. Nottingham Forest are back in the Premier League and they've got their first win in the top flight this century. All that to come in just a sec. Football's Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Football's Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Welcome back to the Premier League weekend review show here on the Football Social Daily. We're going to blitz through the final games of the Premier League weekend and the big talking point from Sunday's action tie is Chelsea 2, Tottenham 2 at Stamford Bridge. A little bit unfair on Brentford because they were so brilliant against Manchester United, but I've plumped for this one as a result of the weekend. Four goals doesn't end Spurs' long record of not beating Chelsea, but this was a cracking game. Two sides that you'd expect to be in the Champions League race come the end of the campaign, and lots of needle at full time. Harry Kane scored after 96 minutes to get the point, and then Thomas Tuchel was a little bit unhappy with Antonio Conte after the game. 
Yeah, very unsavoury scenes. Nobody wants to see that, do they? No, come on, everybody wants to see that. We all love it, don't we? Thomas Tuchel wants to see it. Can't beat it, can you? Get the popcorn out. Absolutely, it was fantastic. Fantastic to see. Yeah, the aggro. Conte had clearly gone very early with his um, celebration in in Tuchel's face at 1-1, hasn't he, when Tuchel... Uh, raced past him down the touchline but I mean it was a, a, a terrific game it was a slow burn I thought the first half was wasn't great but it, it really caught fire second half Tottenham may be fortunate to get a point out of it at the end but I think it sort of continues their their momentum under um, under Conte and it it does feel like they're I wouldn't be surprised if they finished above Chelsea this year I think they're going to they're going to hugely benefit from a full Conte pre-season they look like they're they're really making progress now Chelsea desperately lack a striker, don't they? They they lack a forward who can put the ball in the back of the net. Basically, um, they've they've obviously got rid of Lukaku and Werner. Neither of those two were probably the answer, but I think they're still short of a of a real goal scorer. But yeah, after seeing those those scenes after the goals and at full time, hopefully they can draw each other in every cup this year as well, and and give us more than that, more of more of that. And let's face it, it's no surprise that Conte and Tuchel. Uh, are at the centre of the aggro, is there? I think we could have all predicted probably that they would they would not be seeing eye to eye for very long. No, uh, and I just have this image of somewhere in Rome tonight, Jose Mourinho sitting down, stroking <laughs> a grey cat on his knee, and just slowly stirring his tea and, and having a little laugh uh, to himself. Yeah, a cracker at Stamford Bridge. Points shared uh, in the match and in the boxing match at full time between Tuchel and Conte, both sent off, and the FA have confirmed that they will face disciplinary action in the next couple of weeks right moving on to a historic day at the city ground Jonathan Nottingham Forest won West Ham nil a first Forest goal for summer signing Taiwo Iwanyi although in fairness he probably didn't know much about it lots of narratives swirling around about this obviously Forest back into the Premier League for the first time this century getting themselves a win in front of the home fans it's it's nice to see uh, any any sort of neutral perspective looks at this unless of course you're a West Ham fan and it's good that these these sorts of stories still exist in the Premier League they did ride their luck massively West Ham hit the woodwork I think three times they had a goal ruled out Declan Rice missed a penalty or to be more precise Dean Henderson saved his penalty but it is good to see these stories still existing in the Premier League Nottingham Forest I don't think anyone is under any illusions they're in for a battle this season but to get this win under their belt it will boost their confidence and help them moving forward Yeah it was brilliant it's been a brilliant Sunday of football um, and this was a sort of great starter to the, to the Chelsea Spurs game. Fantastic atmosphere at the city ground. Uh, Forrest giving it every, everything. I just, I mean, they got the three points. I just hope they've not used up all their luck for the season in one game because they were pretty fortunate with it all. You know, you go through that. I mean, they, they weren't just hitting the woodwork. They were slamming down off the underside of the crossbar and you were, they all, all went to sort of goal line technology to you, just to make sure they hadn't crossed the line, the penalty. Even uh, even the goal that was disallowed was a little bit of controversy around that one. So it was you know it was thoroughly entertaining. Um, I believe yeah, it's, it's fantastic to see Boris back in the Premier League. I hope they give it a good go. I think they've made some good signings. Um, obviously, you know we're talk, talking about United goalkeepers and Dean Henderson has gone to Forest, made the penalty save, made a couple of other good saves as well. Um, Jesse Lingard it seems to fit in pretty well uh, a couple of the players that came up with them as well you know they'll enjoy the experience of the Premier League they're up for it so a great start to the uh, yeah 
great home game for them. Great start to the season and it's brilliant to see them back. For all the positivity surrounding Forest, we have a very unhappy hammer in the FSD family. The boss man, Jim Salverson, I caught up with him earlier on to get his take on another defeat for West Ham this season. Ugh, not sure how we lost that, but you can't fault the Forest commitment for out. But two underside of the crossbar hits, a penalty miss, a disallowed goal. I think West Ham can count themselves unlucky in that, but I think what it does expose is the lack of depth, particularly in defence for West Ham. We desperately, desperately need new players, potentially a right back. I thought Soufal was pretty average today, particularly with his passing. Cresswell has had his challenges over the last few seasons, but having one fit centre-back at the start of the season, I mean, only three fit only three centre-backs in the squad. One of them has been out for an entire season in Ulboa. And Dawson is 705, I think, was the latest count on his age. So we desperately need investment at the back. David Moyes and the board need to stop diddling and get some more signings over the line. But you can't fault Forrest. Good commitment. And they probably, begrudgingly, deserve their win. Right, I'm going to get a beer. Cheers, Jim. Ty, just listening to Jim's comments there, one of the things that he focuses on is this idea of getting defensive players through the door. West Ham have not been shy in spending money this summer. They've spent over £100 Gianluca Scamache is the the big name that jumps out, but they do have issues at the back. Nayef Erdegaard is the player that they brought in for Stad Wren. He's got an injury he hasn't featured for them so far this season. Angelo Ogbonna and Craig Dawson both missed out this weekend, and Issa Diop has moved on to Fulham. So there is a gap at the back for West Ham. Ben Johnson filled in alongside Kurt Zuma at Forest. They're not in Leicester situation whereby they haven't signed anyone. They've, they've spent pl- spent plenty of money, but they do need a few more heads to come in. We, we looked at the start of the season at West Ham and thought the momentum from last season, performing well in Europe, they can build on that. David Moyes is massively experienced. They've kept hold of Declan Rice. Scamacho, we're all excited to see if he actually can bring that kind of football Italia 90s feel to the London Stadium. But they do need a couple. They need another Craig Dawson. If they could find a, a Dawes Craigson or someone like that, that'd be perfect for them. Yeah, it would. It does feel like they need another another centre back, especially with the injuries and, and Diop going. Um, they obviously invested a lot in in Ayo Rudd, is it? Who's now got injured. Um, playing Ben Johnson at centre back doesn't seem like a long term solution to me. He doesn't look like he's he's very comfortable there. So they could certainly do with with strengthening. Obviously, losing your first two games is. It's disappointing. You mentioned before, I think there's only four teams who are winless at the moment, and one of them's got another game to a second game to play. Um, I, I mean, I wouldn't be too concerned if I was West Ham. The the game last week was obviously very difficult, especially with their injury crisis. Getting City first up is is tough. They were hugely unlucky, I thought, at, at Forest. They were the better team. They could probably have won that game quite easily. Um, obviously, the missed penalty. Fornals hit the bar and, and bounced down on the line. Henderson made some really good saves. I thought they looked pretty decent and they and they played quite well, um, so I wouldn't be too concerned. But I think if they could get another versatile defender through the door, maybe before before September the first, that would that would set them up quite nicely, and you'd have them you'd have them banked for top seven, top eight again. I think easily. 
Moving on to the final few games of the weekend, Jonathan, Southampton 2, Leeds United 2. This looks set to be three points for Jesse March. He was very angry at full time that they let the win slip away. But Ralph Hasenhutl, who we mentioned, is under pressure on the south coast, said it was a sensational reaction to come back from two goals down. A first Southampton goal for Joe Aribo after his move from Rangers and then Kyle Walker-Peters with a brilliant equaliser. This was really important for Southampton. They, they got slapped on the opening weekend by Spurs. They needed a point at least in this to, to stop that pressure building again on Hootel. There's going to be tough weeks to come for Southampton, but this was an important point at, and I have to say this, sorry Ty, Southampton won the Premier League reporters' record for the hottest stadium yesterday. They got a point <laughs> in the beating down South Coast heat. This was big for Southampton. Yeah, it was big, but I'm not sure it's big enough really to take the pressure completely off Hootel. I'm a little bit worried about Southampton this season. I think they bought some good young players. They bought two young players from City who are, you know, really exciting futures ahead of them. Goalkeeper Gavin Bazunu uh, and the midfielder called Romeo Lavia. I've watched them playing for the EDS. Well, actually, Gavin Bazunu has been out on loan, but I watched Lavia a lot playing for the EDS. He's a really, really talented player. Um, good understanding of the position. Bazunu has been out on loan. Obviously, he's an island keeper as well. Saved a penalty from Ronaldo. But they've had a couple of other young players as well. I, I, I'm a little bit worried that they're being thrown in at the deep end too early. Um, it's a big risk. Uh, the, the, you know, they could end up getting a lot of money maybe for one of these players in the future. The potential is that high. I, I, I just fear for them a little bit that they've, they're throwing too many of these young players in. They have got some experienced players in there, uh, Walker Peters, Ward Prowse, but it's a big gamble. And, you know, if if you're expecting a tough season... I really think you've got to be beaten sides at Leeds uh, at home. You know, Leeds were the side that escaped relegation last season. So, you know, you've got to think that you've got to finish above them, really. Um, so uh, they've conceded six goals already from their opening two games. Obviously, Spurs away is not an easy one. But I'm slightly concerned for Southampton. It's a difficult one to gauge. I got absolute pelters in the office for when I was rushed to make my predictions and saying that they, they might get to the edge of the top half. I'm, I'm hoping that I don't make a complete fool of myself but we'll, we'll just have to wait and see how, how it goes um, Ty that was it in terms of goals uh, over the weekend's action because the final two games were both nil nil Wolves nil Fulham nil Alexander Mitrovic could have won it late on Jose Sarr keeping out his penalty and what I wanted to ask you about this is the perceptions of promoted sides. They've got two points from two games, whereas Forrest have got three from two, and so have Bournemouth. Bournemouth beating Villa on the opening weekend, and then Forrest, as we mentioned, beating West Ham this weekend. What does you better as a promoted player, as a manager? That excitement of the first win, particularly if you get it at home in front of your home fans, if that's then countered with a defeat and a resounding defeat, that can impact confidence. Fulham are yet to win, but they got a point against Liverpool. They got a point in this game. It's slow, it's steady, it's not particularly exciting. But that might be a better approach in the first few weeks of the season. It might be better to just rack up draws, wait for that win, than win one and then maybe lose four or five. Yeah, I think so. And it, it's the manner of, of the performance as, as dull results as, that as well. Sound. Fulham. Yeah, exactly. And and Fulham gave Liverpool a real game last week. They've I think that they were, they were second best against Wolves, but they weren't. You know, they've they kept a clean sheet. They've come away from home and got a point. It could have been a win, but for the penalty, Forest have like so they've got one more point, but it, it was a very fortunate three points. You, you've got to say that, and they were beaten last week. And 
maybe if you're Fulham, you, you take more positives from it. And I think that the big thing for Fulham is what happened last week with Mitrovic scoring twice against Liverpool. OK, he's missed a penalty, but I mean, anyone can miss a penalty. It, it looks like he is finally equipped and ready to score goals in the Premier League. And if, he's, if he can be a 15-goal-a-season striker for Fulham, then I think they stay up. And the signs there are, are pretty encouraging. So and maybe they would be the happiest of the, the promoted teams. Bournemouth had a good win on the opening day. You can't read anything into losing to, to City. But it, it feels like Fulham have... Although they've got one less point, it feels like they're a little bit more more solid. And Jonathan mentioned before about Forrest. Their, their, their transfer strategy is, is really interesting to me this summer. They have just signed so many players. I mean, it looks like they could end up with something like 16 or 17 players through the door. And that just feels like a huge, huge risk when you've just been promoted to completely rip that team up. I think there was three players in the starting eleven today who played in the playoff final. That will probably go down by the end of the window. There might be only one or two and... That feels like a a dangerous strategy. I think Fulham tried it a couple of years ago and it ended in relegation. It, it feels like that's a risk and Fulham's approach has been a little bit more cautious, a little bit more safe, but I think they'll be they'll be pretty happy with the way those first two games have panned out, I think. Final game of the weekend, Brighton nil, Newcastle nil, Jonathan. And, and you guys are both print and digital journalists and there's a huge amount of bird-related puns that you can come up with from this game because there wasn't an enormous amount that happened on the pitch. The winged derby, the bird-off, the longest flight in Premier League football if you're a seagull. you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill the puns. But, Jonathan, this was fairly solid, if unspectacular game. A point for both sides means that they're both unbeaten now since the start of the season. Brighton beating United on the first game, uh, first week end of the Premier League season sorry and Newcastle beating Forest last time out nothing too amazing to write home about but Potter Eddie Howe both fairly happy and probably will have a little bit of business to do in the next week or two yeah it, it kind of suits both of them doesn't it I, you know Newcastle are making that progress that they wanted to since they got the new owners so this is a you know this is a game they would have lost every other season over the last 10 years and it, you know they were up against it Nick Pope made a couple of saves. I, I'm still not entirely sure why he was off on my Twitter timeline quite so much. I still can't get my head around it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he but, is either. Uh, I wouldn't worry and, about and, it. And yeah, Brian, I, I guess it was kind of a shame to, to not build on the United victory. Um, you know, it would have been nice to, to start the season with two two victories. You know, but they, they have lost some talented players in the summer. Obviously, uh, Cucurella playing for Chelsea today. Um Basuma as well for Spurs, so they, you know, they've lost a lot of good players there. So it's it's, it's impressive the way that they've just got on with it, um, and you know, a, a bit like Brentford, they know exactly what they're doing. They've got a good coach. They're tactically completely on top of it, and um, yeah, a, a nice day out on the seaside for for Newcastle. I would have thought. Uh, I've got to ask you before we wrap up, Ty, about Nick Pope because Burnley, his old club, used to be your old stomping ground. He, he definitely seems to be a bit of a ham sandwich type character, and he's suddenly this social media superstar. He has no idea why he's a social media superstar. How do you think he would have reacted to this? Because it, it seems to have flown clean over his head. Yes, I imagine it would. It, it reached a peak, I think, when he tweeted his own name, didn't it? Um, it was absolutely bizarre. And then the guy that. When he was at Burnley, there was a there's a another Nick Pope with a blue tick who used to get a lot of um, Nick Pope praise or abuse going in the wrong direction, and I think he even replied to Nick Pope with another Nick Pope, and it was yeah, it was all going off. It was very bizarre. He's a very level-headed guy who's had a um, 
an unexpected rise to the top, shall we say. I think he was still, you know, working on a farm and, and deep in, deep in deepest non-league at sort of 16 and nowhere near um, what, what you see now. So, yeah, I imagine it is going off his head um, or going over his head, rather. Um, a very a very strange situation, shall we say, and um, I guess it shows the the power of social media. At least on this occasion, it was being used for uh, for a bit of good fun, wasn't it? Yeah, indeed, for uh, for a change. Hopefully, Alan Sat Maximin has given him a few Twitter lessons because if you don't follow Alan Sat Maximin <laughs> on Twitter, make sure you do because he is probably the funniest Premier League player on Twitter right now. Fair play to you, Nick Pope, and he responded in typical Nick Pope style by just being dead solid in goal and making a load of saves. Uh, that is it for this weekend's edition of the Football Social Daily podcast. Jonathan, Ty, thank you for getting through this incredibly hot Sunday with me. Thanks for having me on. Great to Thank be back. Thank you, Virgil. Great stuff indeed, guys. Yes, we are back and the Football Social Daily is back. Back to full speed for the 2022-23 season. You know the drill by now. Hit subscribe and you can get access to that brand new show. And alongside that, we're giving you something extra for the new season. Football Social Daily Shots. Every day, alongside our long-form podcast, we're doing a bite-sized update on a breaking Premier League news story. So from tonight's episode, you can scroll back to listen to my review of Saturday's games. And if you scroll forward, you can check out the podcast for tomorrow. The guys will be back in business tomorrow, previewing Leicester against Crystal... Sorry, Leicester. Liverpool against Crystal Palace and getting their Monday moan on. Yes, it's Monday. It's moan day. Let's go. Football's Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode.